I was just talking, trying to tell my uh, children about the games that, like, I had boomer parents, and so everything went okay for them, right? And the games that they they made for us and gave us our birthdays and stuff were all like, "Don't break the ice, don't spill the beans, you know, don't screw this up," essentially, right? Or everyone dies, like Operation. That he actually was gonna die on the table if you if you made a mistake. <laughs> I never made that connection, but that's a really good point. Well, I just think it might have done something to our psychologies. We just don't want to screw this up a little bit more than the other generations. I also have boomer parents, and I think it's also <clears throat> even I think maybe less board game and more having watched the boomers screw everything up. <laughs> That'll work. <laughs> That's actually true. <laughs> things are bad. I don't know. I don't know how you're coping with everything, but things are really bad right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm kind of a lifer musician, indie musician. So things have always been bad, but in a good way. Like we had a romance for that. And uh, my bands are like little cults. So we just sort of move around the world and we find like-minded hearts and that's that's a real honor music when you're not making shit up you know when you're not showing off or lying or manipulating um you get the opportunity to to live small to work small and then you meet other people who would would never occur to them to do anything else you know we were only in the the industry per se by accident for a little while until I was just like, no, 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 it's not good. It's not us. I, I got to get out of here. And it was hard to get out of there. You know, Warner Brothers contract is pretty solid. <laughs> and so I bought my way out by giving them my first solo record. And from then on, it's been the real work, the real life. The, the You know, you, it's hard to live on the road, but it's such an honor. You know, the world is, is big and hard and nice. So you got swept up in that whole 90s alt-rock yeah. thing, the giant vacuum. Yeah, yeah. And immediately knew that um, a huge mistake had been made. <laughs> and like I said, I'm really nice, but I had to, I, I, I'm also honest. I had to say, I'm not ever going to turn my back on music or women and give you sexist product. And all these humans that worked in the beehive were cool. They're like, I, we know, we we don't want sexist product personally, but this monolith that we are does. And I'll be gone in six months. And best of luck. And that's when I realized, oh, so there's no hope, which is great. It's a good thing to find out. You got to do it yourself if you don't want to lie. Lots of people do, <laughs> and they make good money <laughs> because it's very rewarding. <laughs> The earthly rewards are there for you if you want to do that. But I was living in music, lost, lost in music. And to the point where my poor bandmates, I, I don't know how they lived with me. I'm like I say, I'm, I'm a gentle person, but I was just hearing music all the time. I was not ever going to be a pop star. And so you put somebody like that in in the, the front of your band and expect anything good to happen in the industry. It's just sadness. <laughs> and so we all took off together and, and uh, it's been happiness ever since. 
When you say sexist product, do you mean how they were packaging you? They, they didn't really get the chance to package me that way. But that was what they were attempting to do? Yeah, that's what they want. And, and so I'd say, well, sign somebody else. You know, how, many people, how many women are willing to objectify themselves? And they said, yeah, yeah. Um, but you're here because you have integrity. And we sign them because we own you. And that seemed kind of sleazy to me. But I was getting money to make records. And the records wouldn't have existed without this money. We didn't keep it. We made records on it. I literally have never made a penny on any of my records. And what became apparent was that uh, if they... If you don't give them stupid, they're going to drop you. You know, they had no respect for radio, no respect for listeners, lowest common denominator. It's not a real thing. So that 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 was really my insult. It's like, I don't want to do stupid. I did stupid like maybe once and regretted it forever. And <laughs> but ultimately, they were pretty decent about it. They took my solo record, Hips and Makers, in exchange for my freedom. And... Um, now I get to be a musician forever. I'm in publishing. Um, I'm, I'm a reporter by day, I would say. I'm in publishing too. <laughs> That's my smart day job. <laughs> I'm an author. That's my fallback career. Uh, I wrote a book about Vic Chestnut called Don't Suck, Don't Die. And then there's a very recent one, which you wouldn't know about. It just came out uh, called Seeing Sideways. They asked me to write about raising my four kids on the road, which I thought was impossible. It's like the 30 year span in one book to write about or to do. Uh, <laughs> I should have taken 30 years. To write. No, I mean the, the impossible part of it. <laughs> the, the book didn't seem like the idea of a book like that is that it just doesn't seem like something you could capture. Condensing that timeline, condensing the timeline, but also, humans that are your what religion like you create life and then you write it down creating life is the is wacky enough you know that doesn't that doesn't ever make sense and then being responsible for that life you know kids aren't silly the, the way they sometimes portray them they're life and death and they're in your hands and uh I, that was something that i just didn't think i could even speak about much less condense into a, a book and my my memoirs are very uh novelesque they're like um they're creative nonfiction, and so i just took my son's voices each one has a chapter and i used no other names i just named the chapters after them and use their voices as almost the language of each chapter and then i i finished the book after a five years or so and thought this is for them <laughs> it's only for them <laughs> i had one person at a literary event interview me and say i read your other books this one is your masterpiece and that's when i knew no one <laughs> read this book <laughs> is masterpiece a nice way of saying limited audience I took it that way, <laughs> which is fine. You know, you don't want likes, you want love. Even with the records, I don't want some 
I want somebody, you know, I would want somebody to buy it and listen a million times. I don't want a million people to buy and listen once. And planned obsolescence is what runs the show. And I, I don't participate in trends. So that wasn't for me anyway. Uh, I'm going to keep, keep going for the, the tiny little love. <laughs> when, when you say planned, obsoles- planned obsolescence, you mean for careers? Uh, in the music industry, it's like you're, you're, and, and records themselves. If you, um, you need to be very self-conscious in order to play that game. And you need to be able to dehumanize others. And I, I just don't feel like that. I, I'm too old for one, but I never felt like that. It, it doesn't uh, invite music and music isn't fashion product. It's, it's a real thing. It's a spontaneous human impulse. And if, if you have any vanity, songs just leave. And if you have any songs, vanity leaves. So working with something akin to shame is not really their wheelhouse. It's not conducive <laughs> to being a pop star. Exactly. And so I kept saying, well, I want to be a pop star. And they're like, okay, awesome. <laughs> it's like, I just want to be a musician and I want to work. And in fact, when when I, I gave them the solo record, I mean, they were great. The people there were just fine. It wasn't the people. It was the monster that I... I had a disagreement with and they loved my solo record and they, I sent them the artwork and they're like, that's fine. And there's no, no pictures of me or anything like that. It's just my favorite painters work. And they wrote my name on it. And I laughed and said, no, 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 you don't put my name on it. (laughs) Whose name did you want on the record? Chris? And I realized, Oh God, I just made an enormous mistake. I had been hiding behind throwing muses and their noise all this time. And now I can't hide anymore. And I had to do a tour where I had to walk out on theater stages and uh, climb up on that stool that they always give acoustic chips. Oh God, you literally can't hide. Yeah, yeah. And I had been hiding... Well, at least in noise, but also by taking my contacts out so I couldn't see anything at all. And my drummer would take his contacts out. None of us could see anything. <laughs> Just in a swirl. Just bumping into each other on stage. <laughs> exactly. If there was anything to communicate, we had to scream at each other from like a few inches away. They thought we were fighting. But I couldn't do it with the state, the big empty stages and they're all, the audiences are silent and they aren't drunk because I'm an acoustic chick now. And uh, so I had to wear my contacts so that I could climb up on the damn chick stool and then get my guitar. And you can't bump into the mic because everybody hears it. As you know, it goes. Thunk. I think I just did that a, a second ago. <laughs> I forgive you. <laughs> I'd appreciate it if you don't draw attention to it next time. It happens. <laughs> it's so goofy what we do. More people should make fun of us. <laughs> And when you said you couldn't do it, I mean, you kept doing it, for at least for the duration of yeah. the tour. There was a learning curve. I do it now. I had, I thought that this band that nobody cared about, you know, you take one person out of it, it was going to be reduced caring <laughs> by two thirds. <laughs> and that was almost a production impression on my part. I was creating these paintings. I was going to the studio, literally sleeping in the studio and playing for months and months and coming out with 
uh, something I was just done with, just ready to walk away and like start the next noise now. And I thought that was work. But honestly, my work is so secondary to the process, which is just the moment of inspiration. When I reach for the guitar, if I reach for the Callings, I know it's a an, a solo song. It's an acoustic. Bill Collings is just genius acoustic guitar. Anyway, I'm gonna start talking about guitars. <laughs> if I reach for a Les Paul, I know it's for Fifty Foot Wave. If I reach for the Strat or the Telly, it's the Muses. And my drummers tell me it's a really stupid system because they get jealous of each other's songs. And it's like, no, 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 <laughs> that's for Fifty Foot Wave. <laughs> I understand to a certain extent what what the distinction like sonically between a, a Telecaster and a Les Paul is, but what mm-hmm. what's the distinction for you in terms of the music you make on each? Throwing muses is almost a spindly effect. It, even though they can be loud, there's a a detailed orientation that allows for um, some thinness and. Uh, some almost overcomplication. Telecasters are are more trebly than most guitars. And, right? Exactly, and they and they're glassy clean. And I have my telly is not a, not strictly. It doesn't really sound like a telly, and the strats a little bit not like a strat. But yeah, you understand where I'm going. They're glassy. They can take effects, but it isn't the meatiness of fifty foot wave. Where um, I'm an, I'm the only guitar player in both bands. In fact. It's the same band, really. It just, we just switch out drummers. <laughs> but the Les Paul and the SGs are so heavy that I can... And I'm even playing a super baritone on 50-foot wave now. Um, because that heaviness allows for um, space. Just more space. It's a very full band, very loud and noise rock and all that, but we're not making as much noise as we are filling, if that makes any sense. I was reading up on reading some interviews that you've done over the years, and the impact of synesthesia is really interesting to me. And it, and I think it's a lot it's a lot more common in musicians than most people appreciate. Like I, I'm surprised at how oh many God. conversations I have with musicians where some version of that comes up. No kidding. I would like to hear that because people act like I'm crazy. I don't know how I would remember all the chords if I didn't have this impression of color along with sound. It's always color. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a system to it. Um, well, like a, a D major is a sunshine yellow. Um, and a D minor adds a little bit of blue, which to me is brings some of the sadness. Of course, that has a greenish tinge, so it's reminiscent of an A minor for me, whereas an A major is a royal blue. And I I move through all the, the colors while I'm playing, and I, I so I see the colors in front of me, and I see the fretboard in front of me, and I don't look down, which I probably couldn't do anyway because I got to sing. <laughs> but most guitar players can look at their hands, and, and I don't. I see it all in front of me. So I, I'm not really blinking, and I'm not, not, I don't have a normal expression on my face when I'm playing. I'm just spiralized staring. You have pinwheels in your eyes? <laughs> yeah, 
exactly. Yes, real pretty. Um, but sometimes people will like walk around like in the, in the back of the, the venue. <laughs> you know? Something will happen there and I can't see the fretboard for a second and I gotta like <laughs> get the spirals back. <laughs> it's it's definitely different. So I assume that other people weren't working this way. I would love to know who else. But for me, I, a note wouldn't have a color. It's just the, the way three notes, at least, bounce off each other that makes the color to me. I don't know why that is. Yeah. And then somebody gave me, I think it's an Oliver Sacks book about, there's a chapter in it that really messed with my head because the colors were all wrong. I had thought maybe, you know, someday we'll all get together and we'll prove that this is the true color of this chord. It's like, ah, E minor's burgundy, you jerk. Not to get all like Joe Rogan for a minute, but like that's that's what when people talk about DMT, it's like, oh, everybody has the same trip when they do it. So this is like proof of some other level of oh. everybody sees the same the same machine elves when they take DMT. Yeah, that's like past life experiences. It's just like we all agree. <laughs> I know. I kind of thought we would, but no. Well, I don't agree with them anyway. Not the ones in the book. <laughs> but anyway, so I'm reaching for this guitar the, at the moment of inspiration, right? Which And nobody knows what that is. We liken it to breathing. So you have this energetic in the room with you. And you wanted to breathe, so you turn it into a sound body. And I figure that's when I'm smartest about the song, even though years later I'm going to have to be in the studio as a producer. Uh, and then after that, as a, a performer, I have to embody the song. That moment, that's when the song is telling me exactly what to do, and I have to listen. And the only thing I can do about that is reach for the right guitar. So I'm going to keep doing it even though my drummers get pissed. So when you say reach for the right guitar, you mean that that's the point where you decide who gets the song ultimately? Yeah, because the spindly nature of the muse's sound is only reflecting the material. No, we wouldn't sound like that if that wasn't what the song sounded like. And 50 Foot Wave wouldn't exist if there wasn't this whole body of work that just appeared that needed to sound that way. So my bass player, Bernard George, and I just said, well, let's just start another band. <laughs> because this isn't the muses and solos and everything else. That's just whatever I feel like doing. My last solo record was louder than either of my bands. You mentioned earlier the paintings with the solo record. And, you know, to me that dovetails nicely with this conversation about seeing colors when you're playing. Yeah. uh, Shinro Taki, he, uh, you know, Vaughn Oliver, the 4AD artist, he did all the 4AD covers. And um, I couldn't relate because we were just goofy American teenagers and we were signed to 4AD. And he wanted to give us one of those British gauzy <laughs> covers. And I was like, dude, you can be arty, you know, you can be a glossy grown up and all that. But I'm a goofy kid and I'm American. And we're really shitty. So this isn't going to work for us. It doesn't, you know, listen to the record. And he's like, this is all I do. I should do the gauzy stuff. And um, so we start fighting. We start this friendly fight that lasts for decades. Have you resolved it yet? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're both insulting each other and enjoying it. And we loved each other, but 
I just kept saying, you have to fuck it up. There's got to be some mess somewhere. There's got to be some humor. There has to be, the gravity can't be pretense. There, there's no gravity <laughs> pretense. So um, pull, pull it away and come back to like maybe Vaughn as a kid. Like, you know, and I just tried forever to communicate our sensibility. Um, and he, he, you know, he was... He was my my beloved enemy. <laughs> I was like, "This is perfect for Cocteau Twins. We're not the Cocteau Twins." And he, we worked on covers together, and it was great. But he called me from Japan once at like three o'clock in the morning. I don't know what time it was in Japan, but it was like, "Kristen, I found where we agree." <laughs> and he was in Shinro Otaki's studio, and he was right. That's exactly where we agreed. To the point where I, you know, Shinro came to visit me, stayed with me for a while. He didn't speak English. That was weird. We had to babysit for a Japanese painter who didn't speak English. <laughs> so my drummer and I would walk him around town and uh, sort of lose track of him because we start talking and he wasn't in the conversation. And he was like, oh my God, we lost Shinro. <laughs> and Shinro would be back a few blocks trying to... Um, like Jimmy opened a newspaper. The little box, yeah. Yeah, he didn't know that you needed to pay for it. So at one point there was a cop coming at him and we're like, no, 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 no. It's fine. He's Japanese. He's a painter. He, he doesn't understand. <laughs> exactly. <it> <laughs> uh, but I still see little pieces of our local paper on a goofy island in his paintings because he does a lot of collage work. And now I don't know what your question was. Paintings, right? Okay, good. Paintings and the the overlap between paintings and seeing songs as color. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm very visual when it comes to songs, which are also obviously an imagistic medium when you aren't making shit up. I mean, I know that there are people... I mean, it's all making shit up to a certain extent, right? <sighs> I want to say no, because... When I write a song, I'm not doing it. Uh, the song choose to, chooses to make things glow, particular things that I have to live. If I didn't live the story, I have no right to play the song. But I would never make these particular things glow. And I certainly wouldn't come to the song's conclusion because I lived them. I don't know what matters and what doesn't to a song. So I, for most of my life, I heard the songs and I would literally just copy them down, which was termed hallucinating by people who look for things like that. And I said the whole time, this is just music. I'm not, I'm not schizophrenic. I'm not bipolar. I, this is what music is. It's powerful. But it's true that I was falling under the spell of something, and we're not supposed to do that. Um, it wasn't very clear seeing. And... I just, I realized, well, this is not the kind of music they're used to hearing. They listen to product for the most part. There's music in the music industry, obviously, but there's also a lot of uh, performance-based, um, I don't want to insult anybody. You don't have, you don't have to name names. It's fine. I, no, you can no, if you I wouldn't want. do that. I'm not going to stop but, you. <laughs> no, no. 
<laughs> I just mean, you know, I don't even solve listeners who, who can bring a lot to the table when it comes to listening to music and chords are real and words are real and feelings are real. I get it. But a, song, a live song by you is something that's, that's unforgettable. And I, I can't really live without them. So it was no loss at all for me to step away from the recording industry and say, I am now focused on this music world and it's great over here. You should come here. It's so awesome. <laughs> if you don't know that yet, you're still going to be in the attention for money game. It's just like, think about a, a music venue. The stage is supposed to facilitate the listening process. So the instruments are on the stage and you hear better when you're in the audience. When it came time to realize, oh, there's money to be made. There's showing off to be done. The spotlight they bought was shining on show-offs. And they just kind of walked off with this impression of what music is. And that's, for the most part, that's what the industry is. And some of us musicians will be like, this is look what I found. Like, I picked an apple. Here you go. And they just say, where's your Big Mac, you know, <laughs> you don't have a Big Mac, you don't belong here. And they're right. So I left. <laughs> but there are a lot of people on earth playing music and most of them aren't in the industry. Certainly now I've talked to so many musicians who went through the, the ringer at roughly the same time that you did. And, and yeah. the fact of the matter is a lot of indie bands, all of all of all alternative bands, whatever you want to call them, college rock bands, were, were getting signed to majors. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, 99% of them were going to end up where you are regardless. So you can either go there by choice or yeah. you can get spit out of the machine. Yeah, yeah. I knew when I was 14, I didn't belong anywhere near the industry. And my heroes were bands that lived in vans and... uh we opened for them and I just thought, well, this is viable. Uh, it's just that you get convinced that maybe the industry is changing if it wants some quality. And at the time it seemed to want some quality. I had had a lot of critics on my side in Boston and saying, and in Providence saying, come see this band. And at the time, you could buy that paper or that zine, and you could go to that show. And the musical response was really vivid. I remember people who got the songs. It certainly wasn't everyone, but it was really touching. There was a lot of resonant energy between the song and the, the listener. So having grown accustomed to that, I thought that's what the grown-up world might be. Of course, I was probably 16, so how smart could I have been? We were signed immediately by a British label. We didn't have our records didn't even come out in America. And the head of the label, who was a dear soul, said, you know, all these majors, these American majors want you because the landscape is changing, so participate. And um, I said, all right, if they're not evil anymore, I will participate. And uh, I think they were still evil. But, the, you know, like I said, there are a lot of music listeners in, in those um, corporations. And they're certainly not evil. And our records exist because of all that. And then at one point, um, Prince and I were at Warner Brothers, and he was holding the door for me. And 
we, we both had the same expression on our faces having left meetings going like, could we maybe not alienate fans of actual music by throwing fashion crap at them? I'm losing all the people who got what I did and you're replacing them with these like frat guys and their chicks. And could we just realize that there, if there is a bottom line, I'm going to have repeat customers only from people who like what I do. <laughs> and, you know, I, Prince was in a different meeting, obviously, but we left at the same time and he held the door for me and he said, we'll win. And I thought, You'll win. <laughs> but I think he's right. What I wanted was what I knew I wanted when I was 14. The problem was extricating myself from that dehumanizing function that the recording industry has become. 16 is so young. Is 16 too young to throw yourself into that? Yes. And I was, I mean, imagine you're you're Brian Wilson, but you're a crazy little girl. I was having hearing voices and hearing music and uh, my bandmates babysat for me. And I was about to run into just decades of being gaslit and drugged and vampired and everything they do when they think you're going to make them money The cracking up luckily had already happened and they weren't in charge of that. So I saw that through. Um, but I think when I was 14, I knew the deal. When I was 16, I was starting to lose <laughs> you lost the landscape. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know she didn't stick around forever, but having Tanya there must have been helpful in terms of navigating things. My bandmates were um, my my little cult you know you, i i'm still i still talk to my bass player leslie every day <laughs> my drummer who's my best friend since i was eight and then tiny was my stepsister so i was i was hidden but you know brian wilson yeah you're brian fucking wilson <laughs> you will be a pop star well he also had murray wilson to contend with exactly i just mean i, I was in a very similar situation but i no one liked my songs. So when I'm female, <laughs> trying to figure out where I could possibly fit in, not so that anybody can pay attention, but so, make, so that I could keep doing this. You know, it would be great if I could make records and nobody had to listen to them. That'd be ideal for me. And then I meet some people out on the road, which is where you actually do make money because records cost money. And it seems to be theirs, you know, like songs that they're not mine anymore. I publish them. They're, they belong out there like children, you know, obviously they're my songs and my children, but it's their, their worlds now. And so I figure there is a missing piece that I wasn't allowing for, which is yes, art and entertainment are a sandwich and they go together and there's a huge giving aspect to wanting to do this. But the mindfuck I have to present myself with in the studio is no one will ever hear this. And that's sacred to me. Telling yourself that no one's going to listen to the, the album? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have to believe that I'm working in a vacuum when I'm in the studio. 
And so, yeah, having my bandmates, uh, and including 50 Foot Wave um, and Muses as a Trio and Bernard, uh, who is in both Throwing Muses and 50 Foot Wave, is my longest running teammate in this. They, they're my, um, my bridge to the outside world, and they're a good one. They play beautifully. They're, they're not as weird as I am. <laughs> And they facilitate this. When you were talking about the way you visualize music, you said I, I, something along the lines of, I know I'm not schizophrenic. I, I know I'm not bipolar. But you've been through those specific struggles. Yeah, they, they called me schizophrenic and then bipolar when I was very young. Um, and I had always maintained that it was music. But they make a good point. Music isn't everyone's god. It doesn't make everyone act crazy. And I couldn't handle the songs anymore. And so I tried to off myself, like a lot of us do. I have a feeling there's something about songwriter that is just um, not all that healthy. I'm a very healthy person otherwise. But it's like being pregnant for your whole life. You're in the service of this thing that has to be born always. And there's another thing that has to be born always. And I think composers do a much better job of being here and being very aware that the music is just water flowing. And you grab a piece. They call it a piece. There's a little piece of it. And, and they can step in and step out. And it doesn't seem to destroy them the way it destroys songwriters. Um, but I, I, I couldn't put it in Rat Girl because that was a diary, literally my, my real diary, that um, I, I wasn't actually bipolar. I had to just leave it as it was when I thought I didn't know what to think. I just didn't want to be on drugs anymore. Um, but I was not remembering writing songs or performing them ever even in the studio uh and that's weird so uh now i've I've had emdr and i don't dissociate when i play anymore i realize okay i did write all of these songs and i do have all of these memories and i'm fully present when i play now i do sometimes have the spiral eyes Still, <laughs> a friend of mine in London who had never seen us play before saw throwing muses a couple of years ago, and he said, I am sorry to tell you this, but you were disappearing on stage, and I know you're not supposed to do that anymore. You don't dissociate, right? And I was like, I was just tired. <laughs> so I let Rat Girl play. <laughs> Rat Girl's just so much better than I am. <laughs> it sounds like you're describing PTSD. Yes, yes. Wow. That's impressive. <laughs> yes, that's what it was. I'm saying that for two reasons. One, because of e- EMDR, but also, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong on this, but you were in a pretty gnarly accident, which, was that the source yeah. of it? Or at least some of it? No, actually, it was earlier than that um, that my dissociation started. And then it was after that that I had PTSD. Uh, the accident is when I started being aware of the songs I had always written. I started hearing them. 
it used to only be in the other personality that the songs existed, that the I had concussion and came out of it hearing the music that had always been. But uh, it was having my son taken. He was kidnapped by his father uh, when I was 22. And that was the source of the PTSD. That's why my bandmates had to take such good care of me at all times. Everyone knew my triggers, but nobody knew what PTSD was. And I would say, I understand he's alive, but this kind of memory never ends. That's PTSD. But I have now spoken with a lot of soldiers who come to my readings who have PTSD and we've shared notes and, um, We've realized that the the people who don't leave that are the ones who honor it, which sounds a little bit (laughs) anti-intuitive, but to honor the hugeness of the event is not honoring the hugeness of every event in your life. And so uh, EMDR just evens out the time. It moves it in the past and you realize huge events are as big as small events and that I believe is making me a better songwriter to not have a fearful personality ever. It seems like that would serve music. I'm not nearly familiar enough with this, but is PTSD the kind of thing that people can completely heal from or get over? Or is it always with you? Yeah. I feel like it's still with me. And a lot of the soldiers I know feel the same. Um, I know that something terrible happened back in time and my son and I have never fully recovered, but he's alive and he just had his own son and um, we still know and love each other. Uh, But I never, I never got custody and it was an attempt to kill me because that's how you kill a mother, but you don't, if you don't factor in that mothers aren't allowed to die, it's just a, you know, lifelong cruelty. Thank you for knowing that. I appreciate that. The other end of the extreme, there are those like, I'm going to let the art speak for itself, you know, and I don't, but, but you, I mean, like you're, you're such an open book. Yeah. I didn't mean to. No, no. I'm saying that is obviously like that makes my job easier. Like it's, that's a good thing, but, but, but also, (laughs) but also for people, well, there's, there's that element, but also, you know, you mentioned the soldiers and also like, obviously like normalizing these things and talking about these things are super important. Ah, yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I have a lot of respect for your work. I always have since I was 14 years old and meeting these people who could hear music. I thought it was my world. I had no idea people would join me in it. And y'all would hear it better than me. I can never be a listener. Uh, I depend on you to come back to me with this kind of information. And to have that clarifying function, I swear, I would not be the musician I am without without you all. And the things that you have told me and the way you can hear a, a professional listener it's just such a valuable function in this industry. And I hope you're okay because I don't know where that job is anymore. It used to be everywhere. I mean, this isn't it. <laughs> not not that they were all good. They weren't all you, but no, somebody asked me today whether I'd make money from my podcast and I just laughed at them. 
Yeah. People ask me if I make money from my music. <laughs> when you have to do something, you find your teammates. And this is, you know, going on 40 years of these teammates. And uh, if we're still alive, then all right, I don't mind dying this way. This is, this is a valuable effort on our parts, I think. When you say you can't be a listener to your own music, that's interesting to me. I, 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 I certainly understand the element of something being, you know, too fresh, but what's your relationship with the old stuff? (laughs) (laughs) I, I'm, it's somebody else's. Oh, I don't wish it weren't mine. And I let my bandmates like it. Uh, I have trouble with it. I know I meant well, and I know it's real. Uh, I just wish I wasn't that crazy. I heard uh, Tanya sent a picture of the the house on House Tornado, the cover of House Tornado that we were all playing in front of. And she said, look, somebody painted a pink. And uh, we, you know, Leslie said, I feel like I grew up in that house. And we were like, we all grew up in that house. (laughs) And I thought, all right, I'm going to listen to House Tornado for the first time since I made it. And I did. I was like, what's that dad, dad? (laughs) She's not that crazy. Like, I know I was sleeping on the couch and I never stopped like playing. And uh, yeah, I guess it sounds kind of nutsy, but not that nutsy. (laughs) So I'll get there. I'll start listening to the old stuff. I'll get back to you on that one. (laughs) 